They buried me in the water and I came, I knew. Ha <laughs> ha! Now I'm baptized in blood. What's up, Sheepdog? Welcome to the Changing the Culture podcast. That was my boy at One Time Music. Go look him up on all the socials, Instagram. You can go find all of his music. That song is called Baptized in Blue. You're going to be able to listen to that at the end of this podcast episode. I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you enjoy One Time's music. He's a fellow police officer. He's the man. I love this guy. Go listen to his shit. I'm so excited to bring to you these guests today. We have Team Never Quit speaker Jason Redman and his wife, Erica Redman. Jason is um, a retired Navy SEAL. He put in a full career in the SEAL teams. His wife has stayed by his side. This episode is amazing. It's for the first responder. It's for the spouse because you're going to hear how Jason went through the SEALs. You're going to listen to him talk about his leadership and lack thereof in the very beginning of his career, what he had to do to overcome um, everything that he went through to become a better leader. We're going to talk about his books. He has two best-selling books. One's called The Trident. The other one's called Overcome. The Next Level First Responder Mastermind, My Mastermind, has is just finishing up The Trident. It's such an amazing book. Um, and you're really going to get to know Jason and Erica and you're going to hear, you know, he is a badass. He got blown up overseas and he's uh, gone through 40 surgeries, he told me, um, to become better now that he's over here. And he, that, this guy never stopped. He never quit. He he kept going. He, he put in a full career with the SEALs and he's still active doing all the things that Jason does. And I just know you're going to love him and Erica just like I did. I hope that you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to check out the show notes so you can go and follow him and Erica um, on all the socials. Enjoy. Oh, I get to go first? Yeah. All right. Um, Jason Redman and Erica Redman. Um, yeah, I don't I don't normally do podcasts uh, with you. So thanks thanks for throwing me uh, right under right under the bus. <laughs> Um, I'll let him do his introduction, but, um, but we've been a uh, military spouse. Uh, we've been married now for almost 20 years. Um, he did 10 years as an enlisted SEAL and then 10 years as an officer. And uh, um, I was there for the, the second half of that. Um, so we, we, were, we got married right before um, officer candidate school and then um, rolled into two two combat deployments and um, and being severely wounded. So both of definitely a path that I don't think either of us um, ever ever saw us going down. Nope. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> so hi everybody, I'm Jason Redman, um, retired Navy SEAL, uh, author of the Trident and Overcome, team never quit speaker. So I'm a big motivational, inspirational speaker all across the country. Uh, we are, I am a father, I am a husband, uh, I am a entrepreneur, so running several businesses with my business partner right here, and uh, we have learned a ton uh, on this crazy journey that we have walked. You know, you guys, I just have to say, so um, we are 
I just told you before the show, but for everybody listening. So if you guys haven't gotten Jason's books, he's got two of them. And um, the Trident is what my mastermind has already uh, read and we're on to overcome. You know, Jason, what I, here's what I just, I love about like your story is I love how real you are. You're just so real. You're like, hey guys, I can teach you how to be a leader because I wasn't that good in the beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that wasn't that hard to do, in my opinion. I mean, now there's a running joke in the SEAL community that, if you know, uh, when we do a warning order for a mission, like the last slide is, you know, the agent's information where you can submit your book proposal, you know, because every SEAL has to have a book. So that's the <laughs> running joke in the SEAL teams. But back, back when, uh, you know, there weren't a whole lot of books and I knew some of the guys that had written books and, you know, loved them, respected them. Uh, and uh, although sometimes I felt like they wrote themselves as Achilles or Hercules and, and didn't talk about maybe some of the stumbles along the way. And I had had some pretty big stumbles along the way. And I was like, you know what, man, I don't want to be that guy that somebody would look at my book and be like, man, I remember when you totally screwed up. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know what, there's a lot of power in that because yeah. everybody screws up. Everybody has problems. You know, you don't become a good leader just because you were perfect. Uh, there are stumbles and falls and failures along the way. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to do two things that, with this. One, I'm willing to be really transparent and to say, hey, I made these mistakes and you can learn from them. Two, I kind of felt like I took all the power away from any of the naysayers that were out there that wanted to throw me under the bus and say, oh, I remember when you screwed up. Yeah, you're right. I write all about it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, he, he, here's the thing is like, I felt like when you did that, I felt like it was almost, it must have been almost therapeutic. Was it? Oh, absolutely. You know, and it was also scary as hell. Yeah. I'll tell you when I write the chapter and it was painful for me. And, you know, the funny thing is, and Eric will tell you this, um, it's not like the light switch got turned on and I suddenly went, boy, I really screwed all that up, man. I really need to, you know, it, it was a long evolution of coming to grips and really understanding strengths and weaknesses and looking back and saying, you know, I was pretty arrogant, uh, you know, and a lot of the mistakes that I made. And uh, so when I write the chapter on Af or that whole section on Afghanistan, I really have to get brutally honest uh, with some of the mistakes I made, poor decisions I made when it came to drinking and, and how I was leading and those decisions. I remember writing that and being very apprehensive, like, oh, what are people going to think about me? Are they going to just be like, hey, I hate you. I'm never going to talk to you again because you made these mistakes. Mm -hmm. And that was scary. It was scary to put yourself out there like that. Uh, but the flip side of the coin is, uh, I have had so many people over the years write me and just say, thank you. Yes. I messed up in my career. I was a police officer. I was military. I was a business leader and I messed up and you give me hope that I can fix it, that I can turn it around. Uh, and, and I realized, you know, I was that guy or I am that guy or yeah. gal. So Jason, you know, said, you know, anybody can write a book about, you know, about, everything great that they've done, you know, that's great to tell all your great stories, but you know, we, we, we grow and learn the most usually by our mistakes. So. Absolutely. And you know, and that's the thing is exactly what you said is as I was reading it, I felt, I felt like it was like a breath of fresh air because 
I don't, I just think that we all start as you're human. You're just like us. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, obviously you've done amazing things, but it's just, it was such a I, breath le- I levitate into my pants. You know, that whole thing, you put your pants, <laughs> I actually don't. I levitate okay, into okay. my pants. But besides from that, I'm like everyone else. Okay. <laughs> well, I just, you and you know, it's just, it was so, it was so amazing. And Erica, I just, you being a rock. I mean, he, and, he, and Jason depicts that throughout your whole, you know, the whole book of Trident. But what, one of my favorite moments, and I would love to know what was going through your brain, was when, J- when Jason, when you um, were about to quit Army Ranger School, and you're like, babe, I'm coming home. And then you, you talk about how there was this long pause. <laughs> and Erica's like, well, what happened? <laughs> like, okay. Like, I'm so excited for you to come home, but just I need to hear about it. So Erica, what, tell, what was it like being a spouse of this SEAL? Um, you know, really, I, I didn't have, um, a huge military influence, you know, so I really, even though I think he tried to warn me, um, you know, I don't know that I exactly knew what I was getting myself into, but, um, but, you know, I think I, I was fortunate that, you know, he was a SEAL and, and, you know, I, I kind of knew what I was marrying into, um, as much as I, as much as I could, you know, I, I think, Yes, he's very blunt about everything he did wrong, but I also think he was really hard on himself because I knew his intentions and, you know, I think in my mind, I still was like, you know, your biggest fan. So, you know, when he's, I, I mean, to be honest, I was mad myself when he got, you know, was sent to Ranger School. So I'm like, so let me get this straight. You just got home from a seven month deployment. I mean, I don't, I don't know, maybe you were home a month or two before then you went to Ranger School. Then he messed up and, you know, ends up getting it extended. Um, We actually had pretty good communication when he was in Afghanistan. And so our daughter ended up having a a minor surgery. But um, I can't tell, like, I was so frustrated that I could not even call him or talk to him in ranger school. So I was like, so let me get this straight. I talked to him just about every day in Afghanistan. But I can't, you know, I can't talk to him while going through this surgery with our, you know, with our infant at the time. Um, so I think I was happy. I mean, I was kind of like, okay, this is scary. This is kind of crazy, but you're coming home. And I feel like I was like, we're going to figure this out. Um, you know, together we will, we'll, we'll figure out what comes, you know, what happens next. And, um, so probably the other phone, the next phone call, that's my next question. Not only was he not coming home, but he had, um, he had extended his stay. Um, that one probably made me mad, not necessarily the first one. Yeah. 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 And, and how did you, like, how did you as a spouse, right? So I think, you know, I don't think spouses sometimes, I I think that we don't get enough credit and that's how I feel. And, And Jay, don't take any offense to this, but it's the truth because you know, we're home and we're dealing with life. And it's like, you're married, but it's like, but you kind of aren't <laughs> because it's just all on you, you know? And so how did you, how did you come to grips with that, Erica? Like with that extension? And then like, I know you were angry, right? But just like any spouse would be, but how did you deal with it? Like when Jason wasn't with you and you weren't talking to him, how did you, as the wife, how did you deal with that? You know, I think, the kids are kind of a blessing and a curse. Um, you know, I think that they, they, they made it harder and they made it more difficult, but they also just kind of keep you driving forward. So it, it really doesn't, you know, doesn't matter if I, you know, 
am sad or, you know, don't want to get up today. I mean, they kind of keep you driving forward. And I, I always had my own projects. Um, you know, it's always been my, you know, my number one recommendation for any, um, I would say military or first responder wife. Like if you're just waiting for them to come home and your life revolves around that, I, you're, you're going to be pretty miserable. So I made candles, I sold jewelry, I um, bred exotic cats, so you name it. I had a pet sitting company. So <laughs> I have um, I have never found, uh, I've never um, not been able to keep myself busy. I mean, I was always, you know, always yeah. waiting for that phone to ring and for him to come home. But, um, but I, I also had to have my own life. And I love the self-identification because I think it's so easy for us to get so wrapped up in their life. And like for you guys, you know, the SEALs and Navy be everything. Um, it's just really fantastic advice. So Jason, what, tell us like, what made you want to write the book? Uh, it was never my plan to write the book. The book sort of wrote itself to be perfectly honest. Um, because what happened is when I was in the hospital, I was trached and I was wired shut, so I couldn't speak. And uh, so in the beginning, when we actually have these, we've kind of joked about what we do with them, but I have about 500 pages of notes from just writing because people would come from conversations, because people would come in and, you know, they'd ask a question. And the most common question, obviously, from military guys, they want to know what happened. You know, we were you know, we want to hear about the firefight. So it started with writing about the firefight. And I've always liked to write. I've always liked to write. Um, and after I wrote about that firefight, I started writing about others, others that we had been in. I started writing about other missions. And it started to become just this thing I was doing after surgeries. Because I mean, I had 40 surgeries roughly over a four-year period. So and a surgery, you know, uh, typically we would have a surgery and then there would be at least a week, if not longer, that we would have to stay up there and wait to recover and get all the checks before we'd be cleared to go home. So oftentimes when I was sitting around, I would just write. And I wrote, I started writing about Afghanistan and I started writing about all these other things. And suddenly the next thing I know, I had 200 pages on the computer and I shared them with some friends and they were like, wow, this is really good. You should do something with this. And I was like, I don't know, man, you know, seal books are such a double-edged sword. And, um, and, uh, you know, I just, I had a lot of people kind of encourage me. So I said, well, you know, let me, and here I was, I'd made these mistakes and then I'd redeem myself. And I was still active duty when all this happened. Um, so finally, I went to my command master chief, who happened to have been my command master chief at my SEAL team where I was wounded, and now I was at a different SEAL team, super respected guy. And I went to him and I just said, hey, uh, this was also right at the time that uh, another book had come out. I won't throw anybody under the bus. I like to try and not air dirty laundry in our community, but another book had come out and some of the people weren't real happy about that book. And uh, so I went to my mash chief and I just said, hey, I know books are kind of this double-edged sword, but, you know, I've been writing about everything that happened to me in, the, in my career. And I did it while I was recovering. I've got a lot of people saying they think this is pretty good. Would you take a look at it and recommend what process we should go, you know, because I want to do it right. 
Yeah. And he read it and he said, Jay, this is really good. It's incredibly humble. It's what it's it's what we should be putting out there. You know, it's not about the SEAL teams. It's much more about you and your leadership journey. So he sent it to our commanding officer. Our commanding officer looked at it and said, yeah, we give you the thumbs up. And we sent it up the chain of command, uh, went to the SEAL headquarters, and then they gave me the thumbs up to move forward. So at that point, you know, we went down the road. Uh, Marcus Luttrell, who founder of Team Never Quit, um, I reached out to Marcus, and Marcus connected me to his agent, and that's how it all kind of happened. It's amazing. Um, so let's go back, because there's people who haven't read your book yet, and they're going to after this talk but they haven't. So let's tell them, tell them like, a, like what happened. So what happened to you overseas? Um, so to, to, I try and describe the Trident in a very short format and what the book is about. I am a, uh, it is a, it is a story. It is a young man's story of, uh, of it's at its heart and soul. The Trident is a story of leadership and it is yeah. a story of leadership failure. It is a story of leadership recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, redemption, and then uh, incredible catastrophic uh, impact, if you will. You know, I finally get everything back on track, and then suddenly I'm severely wounded, uh, overcoming those wounds, and then laced throughout the entire book is, you know, obviously our story, a love story. So, um, you know, to, to expand on that a little, uh, you know, I was an enlisted SEAL for many years. I came in very young. Uh, I was literally 17 when I joined the Navy. I was still in high school, part of what's called the delayed entry program. As soon as I graduated high school, I went to boot camp. Uh, I was 19 when I graduated SEAL training. I uh, went to my first SEAL team and, and really excelled. I did very well. Um, multiple deployments to Central and South America became a, a instructor at our team and uh, was continuing to do well and got recommended for a commissioning program and went to that commissioning program. That commissioning program though, uh, I started school right before 9-11. So I had grown up in a peacetime military, which anybody that's ever been in the military, if you've been on both sides, is, is a little bit of a different military than, well, not even a little bit. It is a different military than a wartime military. Um, and I came back, so I went to school right before 9-11, 9-11 happened, I stayed in school during 9-11, and then came back to this new world. The SEAL teams really, the last time we had done sustained combat operations was in Vietnam, so we were still utilizing a lot of our old tactics based off those lessons we had learned in Vietnam, because that's just how military units work. We, we operate off the last valid information. Well, quickly we got into Iraq and Afghanistan and realized that, you know, a lot of the jungle warfare and some of the ways we were conducting business in Vietnam did not work. Uh, a, in this nebulous counterterrorism war we were fighting and B, in the deserts and urban sprawls of both Iraq and Afghanistan, obviously not in the mountains of Afghanistan. So there was a total rewrite of the SEAL tactics and how we did things over the time I was in school. So here I am, I come back, I'm thinking I'm God's gift to leadership, you know, patent reincarnated or something. And uh, like, I'm going to save the SEAL teams. And, um, and I came back and, and everything had changed. All the things that I knew were different. And I was really struggling to keep up with this very high paced 
training curriculum we were running to try and get guys ready because we we had a pipeline. We were we were working guys up and we were sending them into the war zone. So here I was, I was this brand new officer and and thinking that I knew a lot from my prior enlisted experience and didn't. And this is where ego and arrogance kind of come together, very dangerous allies um, as a leader, because I was too proud to ask for help. And instead, I just kind of started stepping all over my own toes. And I was messing up. And the more I tried to hang on tighter and fix it myself, the more I messed up. So then I did what, you know, every military law enforcement and, you know, police officer does. I self-medicated. So I started drinking too much and uh, just was just struggling. All of that was really eroding my credibility as a leader. You know, guys were like, yeah, this guy, not only is he making mistakes, he's not leading well. And oh, by the way, he's a drunk. So all of this was kind of coming together to, um, you know, go into Afghanistan. Uh, very first thing I encounter when we get there or as we're going there is Operation Red Wings. That was part of my troop. So my boss was, was uh, Lieutenant Commander Eric Christensen. Uh, I was originally in the platoon in the helicopter that got shot down. So I had a lot of close friends on that helicopter. Um, so literally, I step into my first you know, you're welcome to the combat zone. Uh, by the way, we've got to bury 11 of our, you know, guys. Um, and then went on to this deployment, which had a lot of its own challenges. And fast forward to, I made a mistake or I made a bad call on a mission uh, close to the end of the deployment. And, uh, and instead of and making a mistake in a leadership, you know, everybody's going to make mistakes. I mean, it's just his life as you're growing up, as, you know, especially as leaders, when you're a new leader, you're going to make mistakes, just accept that, but own them quickly own them, learn from them, you know, as people like to say, fail forward. Um, and if I had done that, it probably wouldn't have been that big a deal. I had a little bit of added baggage just because I was already making some poor decisions. Uh, and all of that kind of came together for this perfect storm. So anyways, long story short, I almost got myself kicked out uh, just from pushing back and my arrogance and saying, I didn't mess up. You guys are throwing me under the bus. But thankfully, I had some good leaders who believed in me, who, who said, hey, this guy's got a lot of potential. We just need to humble him. So uh, yeah, I, I got uh, several different courses of punishment. One of those was to head to U.S. Army Ranger School after I got home. So my amazing uh, vacation with the U.S. Army and uh, that, that are, there's unique aspects of that story. We talked about some, the only thing I have ever quit in my life, I actually technically quit ranger school for a day. Uh, it is the only thing to this day in my entire life I've ever quit. And, uh, and thankfully there were some leaders who once again, fortuitous moments that came along and talked some sense into me and, were, and enabled me to get back on track. So got back on track, got back into a new platoon, really changed the way I led and really approached it from the um, selfless servant style leadership, very humble leadership, asked for help a lot, <laughs> built relationships with a lot of guys that I worked with and worked in one of the best troops I've ever been in and headed to Iraq in 2007, which probably some of the most volatile years in Iraq we saw were 2006, 2007. And we stepped into a very action packed deployment uh, we were seeing, um, um, uh, we were conducting operations almost every night, if not every other night, uh, multiple firefights, 
and uh, got severely wounded one week before going home, stepped into an enemy ambush, uh, leading a mission that we were doing and was shot eight times between the body and body armor. I took uh, two rounds in the left elbow that I thought took my arm off in the firefight, uh, took a round in the face that did massive, massive damage to my face and, um, and, and literally uh, almost took my life and, you know, found myself in a hospital in Bethesda 96 hours later, starting a whole new journey. And, uh, and really, you know, I had learned in the journey of leadership failure and ranger school and redemption a lot about leadership, but I kind of learned this higher level of leadership in that hospital bed uh, that you can learn, lead from any situation, uh, even from a hospital bed. It's just, it's your attitude and your outlook and how you choose positivity in the face of negativity. And uh, obviously I had an amazing running mate uh, who kept me on course. And I think that's something really important. It's something I talk a lot about. How do you build your teams of people around you? Because they will make all the difference in the hardest moments in your life. So uh, that, that really is the journey of the book. Uh, and that's really what the Trident is all about. Um, it follows that path. It's such an amazing book. Um, when I first, because I got it on Audible, and when I got it, I was like 12 hours. Yeah, okay. And then like, an hour and I'm like, holy shit. Like, and that's like my whole mastermind. All of us were like, no, we're not putting this down. Like everyone was pissed when they'd have to stop it. I have officers that were like, I'd get, you know, I'd get a call and I'd have to freaking press stop. Like I was pissed. Like, so and we just, I love the way that it was written. Erica, what, what happened from your end when Jason got blown up? Like what happened to you? Like, what were you feeling? What were you going through? Um, Man, I'm glad we got a good life insurance policy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I mean, I'm pretty, I think I'm a pretty positive person. I had definitely, you know, pushed that I believe button. I believed in their training. I believed in everything. Um, I didn't watch a lot of the news um, when he was gone, when he was deployed. I, um, but I will admit like that deployment felt different. I don't know what it was, but he, um, we were planning to go to his sister's wedding in uh, the Virgin Islands. When I booked those plane tickets, I knew we weren't going. Mm -hmm. I like, I couldn't describe it. I even told my girlfriend, I said like, this isn't like me. I'm not this negative person. <laughs> well, no, I didn't say anything. I was like, okay, you know, so we, we buy these plane tickets, but I knew. Um, I, I don't think either of us, uh, honestly, I probably thought like he wasn't coming home and my, you know, my, my girlfriend had just said, you know, now you, you all just got this new house. You've got, you know, three young children. These are just normal, you know, we're, you're just starting to worry about things more, but it did. It had, it had a different, it had a different feel to it. Um, you know, I, we figured out about the time that he was actually in the firefight, I was at his command getting the redeployment brief on when they were coming home. So um, I had met some, some wives that I had not met before and connected with. So I'm literally in the back chatting, being goofy, like, you know, not really listening, you know, um, they're, they're there talking about PTSD with the guys coming home. And I'm like, just give me, I just want the date that he's returning. I like, I don't need to hear all this. I, I, I came here cause I were close and I, I wanted that window. 
And um, so the next morning when I got the call, I'm like sitting here, I'm like, I'm like, oh, who was that guy that was talking last night? You know, what were, what were they telling me? And um, it, it felt like an eternity, but I was notified on Thursday morning and it literally was Sunday night that he arrived. I mean, those couple of days felt like an eternity, but it was actually, I mean, pretty amazing um, quick turnaround to have him home. But um, I don't, it just, it seemed like a blur. I literally, I hit a parked car. I was call, I was flying in family and I was like, I'm leaving. I don't know for how long. Um, I think one of the, I mean, I had gone grocery shopping. I had done everything that I could think to do. And I'm just, different people are calling and I have no idea who they are. Or what, I'm like, okay, who's, who's most important? And I'm like trying to write it all down in a notebook. Um, yeah, so finally I was like, okay, you're the person I'm going to meet at the hospital. You're the one that's going to, you know, take me to my husband. And, um, I think, you know, people laugh. One of the last things I did is I went and got like my hair and nails done because I was like, all right, my world is falling apart and I'm leaving and I have no idea for how long. So at least if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going up there and I have no idea what I'm walking into and I have no idea when I'll you know, be doing this. And people were asking, what can we do? And I, I mean, you went, you went to a parent teacher conference the day you were notified. No, like an hour afterwards, <laughs> I got notified and I had to go pick up my son and we were brand new to the school, which the school ended up being an amazing blessing. And so did the teacher, but I went to this parent, you know, our, our son was new to the school and he was struggling. And I, I, I went and I was like, I was like, Sorry if I'm having a hard time paying attention, but I just got the phone call that my husband was shot and I don't know the status. And she was like, why are you here? And I was like, well, I figured I needed to come let you guys know. Like, oh. like um, That's all normal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, so I don't know, you know, and I just kind of think, so I think that those couple of days were, was, like really crazy and really a blur that I, I really, I didn't know what I was walking into. I, I, I didn't know what we were up against. Um, I just wanted to get there. And, and then I think when I did, I kind of feel like the, like the mom instincts just kind of kick in that it was kind of like, once I got there and I knew that he was stable, it was kind of like, okay, what's next? Like, you know, what, what do we have to do next? So I think that kind of a caretaker, mom role kind of kicked in. I, and so let me ask you this. So what was it like? So Jason, did you actually like, did you die on the table? I, no, thankfully not. No. Uh, I mean, I think it was pretty close. I lost a lot of blood. I mean, uh, I, 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 I don't, they, at least they never told me that. I don't think so. Um, most of the guys that flatlined knew it, they found out later. And that's not one of the things that I was ever told. So I think I was close. They got a lot of blood into me and you saved me. You also swore up and down for a long time that you never lost yeah, consciousness. That is true. <laughs> that is true. You learned otherwise. You learned otherwise. Yeah. I, in the book, I, you describe it very well. What was, so I know you describe it in the book, but like, so I'm, I'm a pretty spiritual person. And I was just wondering, like, did you experience anything? Cause you kept talking about the, this dark angel. Did you actually see that or was that a feeling or was that just like an analogy? It, it was an analogy, but I mean, I definitely, um, 
that is a little bit of a miracle moment. And for anyone who, you know, I don't know where your, you know, your belief on spirituality is, but, uh, you know, I think in law enforcement, first responders in the military, we learn a lot about trauma and you learn how the body works. Uh, you know, I had had extensive trauma training. Uh, so I knew what steps I was going through. I knew that I was in hypovolemic shock. I was going through all these phases uh, from, you know, getting my extremities being cold to uh, not being able to move to, you know, getting harder and harder to breathe. And like, I knew I'm not, di you're dying. Like, hey bro, you're dying. And that was like scary and it sucked. Uh, and, and I remember like, um, yeah, like just the really overwhelming feeling like, hey, you're not gonna go home. Like you're, you're gonna die here. And, um, and that was really hard. And, uh, and I remember like thinking about Erica and the kids and like, you know, they're gonna grow up without me. And it was that moment I, I called out to God and I was like, hey, like I need help. Like I need strength to go home. And, uh, and it was in that moment that I, I felt like I had strength. I felt like, wow, I can actually take a breath again. And I, I felt wow. like I had energy. And um, so interestingly enough, I don't know when that moment was. The firefight lasted about 35 to 40 minutes. Um, so sometime, sometime in that series is when this occurred. And then fast forward to when the medevac helicopter finally landed and it landed about 75 yards from my position. And my team leader tried to drag me, um, which was really painful. So I was like, stop. So I went from not being able to move a muscle to I was like, hey, help me up. Hey, help me get up. And at the time, I thought my arm had been shot off. So I'm like, hey, grab my arm and grab my helmet, and I'm going to the helicopter. And, uh, and I walked. I walked to the helicopter and got on the helicopter under my own power, um, although I wasn't able to get back off under my own power. They, they pulled me off and loaded me on the stretcher when we got to uh, uh, Baghdad. But I can't explain that, um, you know, interesting to this day. Uh, you know, I, I tell a lot of different people about that and, you know, different people want to apply their own logical reasoning to it. Uh, I give it a modern day miracle and I'd love, I'd love to tell you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I am a faith-based person. I'd love to tell you that, you know, <laughs> I have this rock solid faith now. I don't, uh, I still, faith is a hard thing for me. I'm a very analytical person. Really? But I have this moment that occurred that I cannot, uh, and when I speak in churches, I do talk about that moment, you know, mm. so. It's very, very interesting that you're still analytical. Explain that to me. Like what? I want I just want to hear about it. Uh, well, I'm just a, I'm a science. I like facts. I like logical sequences. Uh, there's a great book out there written by Lee Strobel called The Case for a Creator. And it is a scientific-based book that lends itself to uh, intelligent design and mm -hmm. how absolutely astronomically impossible it is that we have life. All these little millions and millions of factors had to come in uh, for, for us to be alive. And so many people out there are like, why haven't we found additional life in the universe? And why haven't we found this and found this? Well, this book has all this scientific proof of how unique uh, one, where Earth is in the solar system and within the galaxy, uh, how we're positioned, 
all the different factors that are coming in to, to enable us to have life. And for me, that's like fascinating. Like, you know, I'm like, that's incredible. <laughs> I work that way as opposed to some people that you can just tell them something and they'll just believe it. They'll believe it. And that's what faith is. Your mm -hmm. ability to believe in something despite concrete evidence. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I joke that if I was one of Jesus's apostles, I'd be Thomas. I'd be <laughs> nodding Thomas. Like, you know, he'd be crucified and he'd be risen. And I'd see him and I'd be like, yo, bro, show me your hands. I want to <laughs> see the spike marks. Like, I don't believe it. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, <laughs> now, okay, so what do you, so tell me this, Jason, what does life look like for you now? Well, I mean, you know, not everybody, uh, I, I mean, it's pretty amazing. I've been able to take all the things that I've learned and, and apply them forward to try and help other people. Um, and, and we've done different iterations. And, and what's awesome is we've been able to do it together. Not everyone I, we, we know a lot of couples that are like, oh my God, I could never work with my husband or I could never work with my wife. Uh, and we're, we're just a really good team. Um, I, I think when it, when it can work um, for the people that, that it does work for, I think it's a really strong, effective team. It's not, it's not for everybody. Um, we don't agree all, all the time, but we- Wait, what? <laughs> we, do, we do most of the time. Um, I mean, we, we actually have run multiple companies together. We sat on a board together and, and I, I love the story that, um, I did call <laughs> one time and I was like, I was like, Hey, you know, we've got this board meeting tonight. And just to let you know, I'm, I'm voting against you tonight. I, I don't agree. I said, you know, <laughs> do you want to discuss this now? You're, you're not going to, you're not going to change my mind, but you know, I'm happy to like, you know, talk through it. Um, I did lose that vote that night, but I still felt like I, you know, just because we were married, I was like, you know, here we are sitting in the boardroom together. And I'm like, just because we're married doesn't mean I'm going to automatically agree. But, <laughs> but thankfully, um, thankfully, most of the time we do agree and we do, um, do see, see eye to eye, which has made us, made us a good team. So we ran a nonprofit for um, 10 years, helping, helping wounded warriors, combat wounded warriors. Um, and then um, started your speaking company that grew into, you know, a speaker bureau and, you know, multiple books now and continuing. And um, yeah, the speaking industry was doing really well until this, uh, this, this fun COVID. So now we're kind of uh, navigating the virtual world. And book number three is coming. Yay! And what, and what is book number three? We haven't announced that. Just like our first announcement? No, I think we might have told them. <laughs> so we, yeah, we it's have another be, book coming. Yeah, well, we're starting to work on it. And it will be, uh, it's going to be, so basically we're taking all the different things, the leadership, the overcome mindset, and the principles, and, and how they've worked in our relationship. So really it's going to be both Erica and I uh, writing this book together. And it's going to be a leadership relationship book. How do you deal with, you know, adversity in your relationships? And how do you... How are you a good parent and a good spouse through all the ups and downs that we all encounter in life? So. Beautiful. It couldn't come at a better time. It's, it's so beautiful. Love that. Tell me a little bit, um, as we're wrapping up, I just want to go over, tell us a little bit about the Overcome Mindset for the people who haven't read that book. So the Overcome Mindset is this idea that no matter what adversity you encounter in life, you will continue to drive forward. Um, you know, I like to overcome. I like to say it's a simple word that says I will never let adversity defeat me. 
And uh, it is just the mindset um, that understanding that it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get exactly what you want. And I think that's something that sometimes people misunderstand. They think, oh, if I grind hard enough, I'm absolutely going to reach my goal. Life doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it comes along and it just, you know, knocks you on your ass. And I was, um, you know, I mean, a perfect example. I got my career back on track and I thought someday I would command a SEAL team. And, you know, I had dreams of someday becoming an admiral. And obviously all that got thrown off once I got wounded. Uh, and that's how life works sometimes. You know, it's, it's not fair. It doesn't, you know, uh, Bad things happen to good people, yeah. but the overcome mindset says, I will continue to drive forward. I will figure out a way. Uh, and it may not be the destination that I thought I was going to, but there is a new destination out there. And at least the one thing I'm not going to do, I call it being on the X. Sitting on the X is the point of attack, the point of crisis, uh, the point of adversity. Uh, in military jargon, and I think in law enforcement, you guys know the X is the point of any attack. Uh, and so many people out there, especially in this day and age, we're getting, I don't know what it is, this weird world we're living in right now that people want to embrace the victim mentality. Yes. And, and the victim mentality sits on the X. The victim mentality feels sorry for themselves. The victim mentality finds somebody else to blame for their problems. And you're the reason I'm here. And the only reason I'll, and the only way I'll ever get off the X is if somebody comes along and picks me up and fixes the situation. The overcome mindset says, I will drive forward. I will figure out a different path, but it's not right here on this X. I will get mm -hmm. off the X. So that's really the idea behind the overcome mindset. And the overcome book is all about that. How we deal with the life ambushes we come up against. Uh, a, how you deal with a crisis. If you're in a crisis right now, it teaches you how to get off that X right now. And then it teaches you how to build a better overcome mindset for the future. Um, because uh, guys, I got bad news. COVID will not be the last life ambush you encounter. Uh, no. You know, more are coming. And how you build your mindset and how you build better balanced leadership is how you are better prepared to deal with them in the future. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. What, what would you say as far as, can you give us some leadership advice from your vast experience and that you really do an amazing job and try it in outlining? Can you just, I would love to hear for first responders. I mean, I can just tell you that that is something that all, a lot of first responders in our realm, I guess what they want to talk about. They want to go to the leadership schools and they want to learn how to be a leader. I have to say, um, and I know I'm giving you a million things, like a million questions, but we just had Dave Acosta on the show, which thank you, Eric. Yeah, we loved him. We loved him. I absolutely loved him. And we got into this like beautiful conversation about like, um, because he got to go overseas and he got to work alongside some former SEALs. And so we got to talk a, a lot about that, like the morale, the leadership, the camaraderie of that versus over in the police world where he was on Vegas SWAT. And, you know, that's one of the things that I'm, you know, I work a lot with my clients and people on is like, how can we bring more of that to over here? Because if we could, we would have a whole lot less uh, issues, in my opinion, than we do uh, in the police force and, you know, all in the fire, you know, firefighter correctional facilities, et cetera. So Jason, what would, what's your opinion on that? I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. 
So it could absolutely be learned. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Dave's a great example of that, being around our community and seeing how we do things. Um, I will say there's one unique aspect that where we truly, and there's a reason I called my book, The Forging and Reforging uh, of a Navy SEAL Leader, um, is the crucible of BUDS uh, and even how we train truly forges our people into the culture that we're looking for. So there's that one aspect. And in doing so, it, it, it gives us the culture and the community that we really want. Um, you know, although that can be learned. And the thing is, you know, I try and teach, and it was one of the mistakes that I made when I got off track from leadership. So I now teach three rules of leadership. So often companies, organizations will bring me in and never fails. I'll have somebody that'll come up to me and say, hey man, I, I'm the chief of this department or I'm you know, running this or I'm running that. And you know, can you give me some quick advice? These are some of the problems I'm having. Can you give me some quick advice so I can be a better leader? And uh, I always ask them the same question. I, I go, okay, well, how well do you lead yourself? And, and it's always telling to me because the people who are introspective and actually try and answer that question, that's a, that's a great indicator. Most people don't. Most people go immediately, no, 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 you misunderstood. I, I need to know how I lead my department better. And I'm like, therein lies the problem. Um, you know, 80% of leadership is how you lead yourself, how you build structure and discipline into your own life, how you project a positive mindset in the face of adversity, how you deal with issues, how you are prepared. Um, how you manage, you know, five key areas of your life that I talk about in the book, your physical leadership, your mental leadership, your emotional leadership, your social leadership, and your spiritual leadership. How do you manage those? If, if all those things are on point, then it comes back to the leadership advice that I was given in, in, when I was getting ready to leave Ranger School. And I tried to tell my mentor and command, you know, prior commanding officer, Nobody will ever follow me again because of the mistakes I made. And he said to me, people will follow you if you give them a reason to. Oh, that's leading yourself. That's rule number one. If you are executing that, people naturally will follow someone who is setting the example. That's just life works that way. We want to follow people that are doing all the right things. You can't help but do that. Right. Uh, and, and then it gets into the next level of leading others, which is motivating and inspiring others to, to, accomplish greatness as part of a team, bringing them together. And, and people sometimes, uh, they, they confuse telling someone what to do with showing and inspiring people what to do. So uh, that, that is how you lead others. It's not, I'm going to tell you what to do. It's, you know, my own actions. And then that kind of builds on top of how do I motivate and inspire? How do I give the right guidance? How do I give the right motivation? How do I provide the right resources, the right training so that you can be successful? And then the last component is lead always. You can't pick and choose when you're going to lead. Um, and that was a big mistake I made when I was a young leader. Uh, you know, I would say, oh, I'm on duty right now. So, you know, hey, follow me. I'm the leader. And then I was going out and drinking my face off and being a total idiot, uh, which nobody wants to follow somebody like that. You know, you must lead at all times. Every word that comes out of your mouth, every action is an impact, positive or negative, on your credibility as a leader. And credibility is the currency of leadership. Mm. So good. So good. You, you know, you said something in your book. I actually made a meme out of it. And it was a quote of yours. It says, 
There is nothing more dangerous on the battlefield than an immature and arrogant officer who feels he needs to prove himself. And I have to tell you, the reason I made a meme of that is because as a young police officer, I was that way. And there's so many, and there's so many that aren't even young. They're just that way. And I, why do you think I would love for you to just expand on that for us? Because for me, it was just so like, I saw myself, I'm like, he's so right. I see other people. I'm like, oh my goodness. Why do you, why did you say that was the most dangerous? Why do you feel like that's the most dangerous thing on the battlefield? Because somebody that's trying to prove themselves will do uh, selfish and oftentimes impulsive things, thinking that it is a shortcut to, hey, look at me. I'm great because I did this. Uh, when oftentimes it can be a situation that'll get other people killed, um, you know, if it goes badly. And, uh, you know, you look at that decision I made in Afghanistan, that was totally driven by my own selfish actions. I wanted to get in the fight. And I saw this as a shortcut to, hey, look at me, I'm going to be this great leader, I'm going to go down and save the day. And we're very fortunate that we didn't, you know, when I took that machine gunner and myself and moved down to that valley, that we did not encounter another enemy force that happened to be maneuvering at that time. This story would be a lot different. The book, The Trident, wouldn't exist. Um, because if I had gotten someone killed, or obviously myself killed, you know, there wouldn't be anything there. Um, so that's why it's so dangerous. I often try and tell young leaders that as a leader, we sometimes feel this incredible desire or this incredible need to act. Like, oh my God, there's this, there's this crisis situation. So there's this, there's this drive that I must do something. I'm the leader, I must do something. When oftentimes one of the more powerful, there's much more power sometimes in, in not acting. Uh, and, and that's a really hard thing to understand as a leader, sometimes, especially when you're in a situation. So in law enforcement or even overseas in the military, if we're in a situation where tensions are rising and we're on the verge of actually bullets down range, um, you know, sometimes it's a lot easier to just start shooting but what's harder is to diffuse the situation, but the long-term impacts on both sides of the spectrum can be hugely different. You know, you could, you could create this massive international incident by suddenly starting to shoot because you didn't take the time to try and figure it out in a fused situation. The easy answer was, let's act. The harder answer is, what's really going on here? How do I diffuse this and reduce this situation? Um, and, and that's a harder thing to, to deal with. And that's, trust me, I didn't learn that overnight. That took many, 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 many years. And, you know, I think as any leader, that's something to try and always remember in the back of your mind. You know, and I just, I just have to say this again, you know, Jason, the way that you put yourself out there and the way that you share your journey with us, it, it also makes like when you give and you start talking about leadership advice, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to listen to this guy. Cause he, you know, you know, cause you know, because you've been to the ladder. And so I just, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you and Erica for coming on. It's, you know, such a gift to have Erica on. We love her. <laughs> for based on your book, you do, uh, <laughs> do an amazing job of depicting Erica. <laughs> um, and Mastermind members, do we have any questions that we would like to ask Jason and Erica before we pop off? Okay, go ahead, Shan. I just have a question about... Um in terms of being a leader and if you're recognizing that some of the people that you're supervising 
are struggling mentally, but they don't recognize that they're struggling mentally, what can you do? Because <laughs> I'm in that situation right now with a person that I'm supervising. I, th I think the greatest thing is communicating with them. And, you know, uh, in our line of work, law enforcement, police, military, there is a level of pride that goes along with, I've got to be hard and I've got to project this. Um, things don't bother me, facade. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I try and encourage some of the leaders, you know, there's power in a little bit of transparency. Um, so sometimes it's, it's trying to communicate with that individual. And if, let's just hypothetically say, maybe there was a traumatic event that occurred and you wonder if there's something linked to this traumatic event and you were there also. I'm just giving this as an example. To be able to say, hey, uh, you know, Joe or Jill, you know, I just want to talk to you. You know, uh, you know we're, we've worked together for a long time. And, and, you know, I know we were on the, I don't know, baby incident. And uh, I want to tell you, that really bothered me a lot. Like, it's really to this day, I think a lot about that incident. I know you were there also. So I just want to make sure you're okay. Uh, sometimes I struggle with that, you know, and I know it's really good for all of us to communicate. I've come to learn it's much better to talk about those things than to hold them in. So sometimes when it, that way you're not like, hey, Joe or Jill, I've really noticed that there's these issues and we need to talk about it. It immediately makes people go on the defensive. Um, and, and it may open things up. I also would do it in a neutral place. Like I, I would encourage like, hey, you want to grab a cup of coffee or you know, maybe have a drink after work. That's what I was thinking too, just to kind of set the stage where they feel comfortable talking. Because yeah. also until they recognize it, you, you may not be able to, they may not even know it yeah. and they're not going to be open to sharing. But at least if you're able to, you know, kind of let them know that you're, you're there and set the stage. Yeah. Full disclosure, I'm not in law enforcement. I'm a behavior therapist, but everything you said totally still applies. We just don't get the same level of trauma that you guys do. Well, I don't know. You never know. I tell you what, I mean, in this journey I've been on, I've met so many people who are not in military law enforcement and first responder that have been through some pretty major trauma in their lives. So I think it's an unfortunate part of being human. So. Jason, how do you deal with the trauma? Like you've, you've endured a hell of a lot. How do you, how do you deal with it? Um, I, well, so I think there's, um, um, one, one, I don't keep it inside. And I think that's really dangerous. And it's one of the biggest things that I try and talk to law enforcement when I do talk to law enforcement and military. Uh, there's a great book I highly, highly recommend for anybody that's been through traumatic events. And it's called Touching the Dragon, written by Jimmy Hatch, James Hatch. Uh, Jimmy was a teammate and a friend uh, at a, uh, our top tier unit. He was severely injured. He was a dog handler. He lost two dogs over the years um, and really, really struggled. Spiraled down and basically tried to commit suicide. Um, wow. Thankfully, the police officers instead of uh, the police officer knew his background, and and he had some really good police officers, uh, which drives me insane watching the vilification of law enforcement right now because I know there's so many great officers out there, and these guys recognized he was in trouble and they worked to help him. So Jimmy in the book writes about that when we experience a traumatic event, 
it, it's uh, it's kind of like a it's kind of like being exposed to a dragon, and that dragon suddenly crawls up and he lives inside your mind. And that dragon is that trauma, and um, and so many of <laughs> so many of us, of us arrogant humans think that we can contain a dragon. Like we think, well, I'm going to take this dragon and I'm just going to put it in this box. And I'm going to tuck it away in the back of my mind and I'll just keep it back there and I'll never talk about it and it'll just live in this box. But the problem is it's a dragon. And when there are triggers and where there are things that occur, um, that dragon breaks out of the box and eats you. And uh, so until you learn to tame and touch that dragon, it, it is a ticking time bomb. And Jimmy talks about that process, and I think it's so important. So one of the, I think one of the things about writing the Trident and Overcome and everything I've been through is it is cathartic and, and being able to talk to other people about things they've been through. So I really highly encourage that, and I think that's been one of the biggest things that you're going to add. Yeah, I, was, I mean, and I think it's so hard because I, I think every, I mean, two people could go through the same thing, and they're going to act totally different. So, I mean, unfortunately, I think trauma, PTSD, it's not a one size fits all. Um, I, you know, Jay was actually really thankful, um, as crazy as it sounds, that he was he was in charge and he was the one that was most severely wounded that night. There was three other individuals wounded. And I think if they would have lost somebody that night or if somebody else had been in Jay's spot and he had been, you know, I think, you know, he would have dealt with that a lot, a lot, you know, differently. Um, also, I just think he went through hyperbaric treatment, um, which we didn't know helps with PTSD. Um, you know, he has his service dog, which was, you know, really helpful. Um, he, you had, what was the name of the shot? Uh, Stella Ganglion Block. So there's a lot of things that even though he's done really well that he's done. And I just think there, there's so many things out there and, and people just have to figure out what, what works for them. Yeah. And that's a great point Erica makes. I was very proactive. Like I, I proactively looked for, if I heard that there was something that could help me, I was like, Hey, I'd like to check that out. And not everything center. helped, but some things did. And I think, you know, it's part of that overcome mindset. I was like, I'm not going to sit on this X, you know, because I did. I struggled with certain things. I, I had problems sleeping in the beginning, and I definitely was super hyper vigilant. Um, and there's no doubt, I think, that running the nonprofit. So him learning things for himself and figuring out, okay, this helped me, and then being able to pass that on, I, I think, you know, was huge and and you know, overcoming. So many people have said, oh my gosh, you guys are still going through. Yeah, I mean, he was still going through surgeries when we were like helping other wounded warriors, but we're like, but like, why, if this is working for us, we want to, we want to share this if it can help anybody. I love that. Thank you, Jason. John, you want to Um, I just have one thing you talk about, um, after overcoming all of your, you know, your injuries being shot, the surgeries, you get the opportunity to climb Mount Rainier with other, you know, warriors like yourself. Um, what's next? You know, what's I? You know, that's a huge accomplishment. Um, I've, you know, my wife and I have had the opportunity of seeing Mount Rainier and um, how beautiful it is. So I'm envious of you being at the top of that. Um, you know, what's, you know, what's the next big feat? 
for you to complete if there is any? Oh, no, always. Uh, <laughs> always. I am a uh, never peak mindset type person. I, and I don't know, it's just part of my personality. I'm, I'm not content to sit still. Uh, although someday we were talking about life later and Eric asked me, possible? do you think you can do is it? Is it possible? <laughs> I, I have one final big hurdle or goal I'd like to accomplish. I mean, there's a lot of little ones, but there's one big one. And, and it's, it's, it's financial freedom for our family. Um, I think a lot of people think, oh my God, you've written two books, you know, you're a millionaire and, yeah. and I'm not. Um, <laughs> So that is something that I would love to achieve uh, financial freedom for my family that, you know, we, we don't have to worry about money. Um, so I am currently exploring some different business opportunities. Although I like speaking, uh, COVID has definitely kind of been like a baseball bat to the face when it comes to different industries you select because the event industry came to a grinding halt. I mean, there was virtually, you know, there was, we saw a 90% reduction in revenue. Um, so it made me realize, hey, you know, maybe I need to look at some other opportunities. And, uh, and I'm excited about that because I've learned so much about business, us working together, and I've gotten to meet some incredible people. So that's probably the next peak for me, the next summit I'm looking at. Very cool. I'll, and I'll just add that, yeah, that wasn't the greatest climb for him. Um, he actually did it with total bronchitis, came home sick as a dog. So they didn't even think he was going to make it to the top. So I think, I don't know that he enjoyed it once he got to the top. I think he, <laughs> but he was determined that he was, he was going to do it. So, so he'd actually, um, he'd actually like to go back and do it again yeah. and uh, not be sick. And I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really appreciate the view. <laughs> No. That's actually our, uh, it's funny you bring that up. That's our social media post today. It is. We yeah. saw that. Yeah, I saw <laughs> that. It's, it's coming up on 10 years. 10 years, yeah. Yeah, so crazy. I was just fine seeing it in the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be. <laughs> um, Dawn, do you have a question? Yes, I do too. Thank you, Eric and Jessica. This book is just so amazing. Um, but so my question is, so you are in the military and it's peacetime and like the leadership above you has spent a 15, 20 year career at peacetime, but then the people above them, it's war. So it's peacetime. You guys are just hanging out doing, you know, training in the, you know, San Diego where you were. And then it's like time to go. So you guys go over to wherever you deploy to first. And it's like, this is not playtime anymore. Like this is a real deal. Like tell us how, what, how is that thought process? Because no one's ever been to war. So it's all kind of like, like, did you ever see Pulp Fiction and they talk about, you know, stabbing the girl in the chest? Like, how's it going to work out? He's like, I don't know. Let's see. Like, I mean, it kind of seems like that. Like, <laughs> you know, like, how's this going to work out? Like, I don't know. You guys go and tell us out there. Um, so I will say that I think the SEAL teams have been very, very good at our level of training. So even leading up to war, we, um, as a matter of fact, there are probably some out there who would say we're sadistic in how we train. Um, we would literally try and come up with the absolute worst case scenarios we could ever think of. Mm -hmm. And we would train that way. So even though when we got into Iraq and Afghanistan, some of the tactics that we had been operating on were not relevant for those battlefields, the core skills were, and the way we had built our teams and the mindset was. So really it was just a little bit of an even, it was a little bit of an easy shift um, because it wasn't like, oh my God, we are not prepared for combat. We were prepared for combat. 
mm -hmm. just had to shift our um, the way we were conducting operations. And that's something I try and encourage people to do. It's something I talk about in the book, Overcome. Um, more life ambushes are coming. And I think that's one of the biggest things that the SEAL teams taught me. And I think it prepared us for battle is bad things are always going to happen. I don't care how well you prepare. And, mm -hmm. and the SEAL teams definitely plan that way. Like we did not plan for, hey, we're going to plan this mission and everything's going to go great. And let's just continue to, it was always, hey, we're going to plan and we're going to hope this goes right. But now let's pretend that the world just, that everything's burning down around us. What are you going to do? And frequently we would, um, we would do things, which I think is incredibly important, especially if you were in a, a, a dangerous job. Oftentimes we would do scenarios where we would remove the leadership. Mm. Okay, leadership, you're dead, you're out. Mm -hmm. And then the, then the training cadre would just step back and they would just, what are you gonna do? You no longer have leadership. So we, we forced everyone to be a leader at any time and, and that makes incredibly strong teams. So, and the SEAL teams really are built on that. Even, even in SEAL training, they mm -hmm. do similar things to that. Uh, it, one of the ethos of the SEAL teams is in the absence of leadership, I will step up and lead. So I try and encourage organizations to do the same. Mm -hmm. So I will say a great question, uh, but that transition, uh, I think we did pretty well. That's awesome. And then what about like on the mental side to have the enemy like right there in front of you, you know, like to have like now it's a real danger situation. Yeah. Isn't it the same like you just practice it so much that it's just kind of reflexive, you know? It, it is interesting because combat isn't quite like the movies. There are times where it is. I mean, I will, I will say, um, you know, not every single night we were in gunfights, you know, within 15 yards of people. Uh, sometimes gunfights were 500 and even a thousand yards away. Um, uh, and sometimes, a lot of times, as a matter of fact, some of the better missions we did, you know, if we did it right, we snuck in and we captured people before they ever even woke up. Like literally they would wake up with a big dude sitting on their chest with a gun and we were wrapping them up in handcuffs and taking mm -hmm. them out of the house. Uh, and never, and a shot was never fired. So it, 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 I think the mindset, you know, we had trained, I'll be honest, for me, um, you know, the first time I ever got shot at, I don't know if I ever thought to myself, oh my God, I'm being shot at. And I think some mm -hmm. of that had to do with, I was a leader at that point. So I had so many things I was focused on, mm -hmm. like where are my guys and, you know, where's the enemy and I need to, I need to make sure I got a head count and what am I doing, where, do, where you know, communications and Da, 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 da. all these different things that I was concerned with that um, I don't know, that was kind of the last thing on my checklist, you know? Right, okay. So, and, and that all comes back to training, all to training. So repetitive training, you know, gets you to where even when the world is burning down around you, you're going to go through the process of what you've learned in training. If you have made training as realistic as you possibly can. And so that's, and that's why it frustrates me sometimes our law. That's why it's killing me right now that there's all this cry to defund police when I know how poorly funded police are for training anyways. Mm -hmm, right. uh, and, and now we're going to reduce that, you know, um, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, everybody can be better in certain areas, but that's one that I, I, I watch it and I'm like, that concerns me. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then I just one more question. 
Yeah. So this one is about like, cause autumn is all about, you know, changing the culture and people talking about things. So like, what, how does it work after you guys come back from deployment is as far as the mental aspect goes, like, does everyone have to go see like a counselor for a little bit of time or, and cause you know, maybe feel you're all very macho and we're man, we don't talk about feelings and stuff, but how do I like that you're transparent and you talk about it, but what about overall? Like, what is it like, or what is um the, uh, I don't know, like the procedure when people come back from war, like from deployment, do they have to go through, you know, debrief, if you will? Yes. And I think we're getting a lot smarter as a, as a community in the military as a whole. And I know law enforcement and fire are trying to get on board with this also. I think for many years, uh, the military and, you know, our first responder and LEO community uh, just kind of self-medicated. I mean, that's the reality. I mean, if you look at our old World War II veterans, I meet so many mm -hmm. people that tell me, oh, my God, my grandfather, you know, he was a yep. World War II veteran. He never talked about it. Um, and some of them uh, did well with that, and some of them did not. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same in, in the community. So I think trying, it's that whole thing. You box that dragon up, you know, it's still there. It's still gnawing mm -hmm. away at your brain. And some people are really good at just, you know, I'm just going to deal with this gnawing that's going on. And for others, the dragon breaks out and eats them. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think trying to encourage people, and we're doing this within the SEAL teams. I mean, I'm doing it. At, I know I'm trying to get out in front of people and break the stigma and say, hey, man, I was a high-level special operations commando. And, you know, I, you know, I saw some bad things and was in a bad situation, and it bothered me. Mm -hmm. But by talking about it and, and getting through it, you know, I'm doing better. You can be the same. You don't have to carry this burden by yourself. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, Jason and Erico, tell everybody where they can find you. Where are you at on socials? Let us know. Me? You want me? <laughs> I was just trying um, to give you. So for speaking, anybody that wanted to reach out, um, they can go to Team Never Quit and view his profile there. Um, we are also very active on all the social media platforms. Uh, Jason Redman or Jason Redman WW, um, Facebook and Twitter or Facebook and Instagram probably are our biggest two. Um, during this current climate, we are actually, we, in the beginning, we were going live every night on Facebook and Instagram, but now we're, uh, we're kind of opening back up. So every Thursday, we are, are live at, um, at 8.30? Yeah, 8.30 Eastern. 8.30. So, um, yeah, and jasonredman.com. JasonRedman.com, and we can get both of the books on Amazon, Sheepdog Nation. I've got them on Audible. Um, you can get them on Audible, or you can get them, you can get the actual book we love. Just want to say- get, uh, You can get signed copies at my online store, so- Well, we didn't know that. Yeah. What the heck? At offx.com. You can get there through JasonRedman.com, yeah. but you know, it's uh, the online store. Just make sure when you purchase a book, there's a memo section, right in that memo section. If you want me to personalize it, write in, please personalize it to me or my family or my husband or my wife or whatever it is. Because if you leave it blank, I, I don't know. I don't know where it's going, so I just sign it. I'll, um, I'll, send, you, I'll send you a little um, instruction. So if anybody um, that does already have the book that they would like to get it signed, I'll, I'll send you a PO box and instructions where people could, uh, could send those in if they already have them. Awesome. 
And um, Sheepdog Nation, you'll have that all in the show notes so you can look at all the links. Jason, Erica, it's been absolutely an honor to have you on here. Um, Sheepdog Nation, we'll see you next time. Yeah, round two was much better than round one.